Hello, and welcome to the Global Venturing Review podcast. I'm Fernando Moncada, coming to you from a colder-than-usual London, which is currently dealing with a cold front coming down from the Arctic. So it seems quite appropriate to be recording this particular episode today. Now, anyone living in the UK or most other places will be acutely aware of the energy crisis we're experiencing virtually all over the world. What they may be less aware of, though it's been quite common in the news, is the pretty substantial increase in earnings that energy companies, particularly oil and gas companies, have been enjoying over the past couple of years. But to what extent has that increase in profits translated to venture investments? The answer is not as straightforward as you might think. On this episode, I speak to Kalyan Andonov, an analyst, reporter, and general data whiz at GCV, whose recent article looks at how the trend lines in earnings and the trend lines in venture investments are matching up. You can find a link to the article in the show notes. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Global Venturing Review, and above all, enjoy the show. So, Kellyanne, welcome to the show. It's your first time on. How, how are you doing? Hi, uh, Fernando. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. No, of course. I mean, as, as soon as I, I, I read your recent article about, about oil and gas, obviously, you know, they're getting a lot more revenue right now than they have been in, in recent months. But, you know, the extent to which that's kind of translating over into their investment activities is a bit of a different question. So I really wanted to, to kind of bring you on board and, 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 and kind of ask you about that here on the show. And, and I suppose maybe to start off with, could you give us like a, a kind of broad idea of what the trend lines have been for energy companies, uh, their, their revenues and profits over the past couple of years, say? Well, over the past couple of years, the, the trend has been uh, more like a roller coaster sort of. Right, to be honest. And the reason, the main reason why that is basically has to do with commodity prices. And we, we've uh, all pretty much seen oil and gas prices go from relative historical lows to going back up to uh, normal or even maximum sort of levels, depending on how, how far back you look at it. So, the oil and gas business is uh, one that very much depends on how the prices of these commodities uh, move. And if you layer on top of that financial leverage, which these businesses tend to have, and quite a bit of it, yes, you, you end up magnifying operating and other sort of profits however you you may want to define them in in the in the piece you're referring to i looked at the ebitda as as a sort of a as a sort of a proxy of that that kind of profitability and over the past two years there, there have been substantial substantial increases in the ebitda profitability so what i did uh, in the piece just to be a little more specific was I calculated the combined total EBITDA of uh, six of the uh, most active oil and gas majors, most active in corporate venturing, that is. So if we look at their EBITDA for the second quarter of uh, 2020, which we all kind of remember, <laughs> that, so that the total EBITDA stood uh, at around $33.6 uh, and for the third quarter of this year, it stood at uh, 164 billion. So that is quite a bit of a 
quite a bit of a of an increase several a bit of a rise right? yeah a little bit <laughs> <laughs> and um and and obviously that's that, that has to that that's had to do with commodity prices that's had to do with the fact that uh the energy in particular the oil and gas space is been living through its uh, sort of a bull market quite aside from the bear market that we're pretty much all other sectors are currently in so yeah it's it's been quite a quite a wild ride so to speak and and what's been the 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 kind of main drivers behind those commodity price changes well it's been a lot of factors starting off from the beginning the pandemic the outbreak of covid so so demand suddenly dropped significantly and supply had to drop in response to that uh, meaning they they had to uh, essentially stop uh, pumping oil and gas off of certain wells right and that later on when we had the reopening created certain shortages because it's it's not as easy to restart pumping from an oil well as just uh, plugging something into a socket you see what I mean? There is there are a lot of technical challenges involved with that. So, so so right after the the lockdowns in in 2020, basically we had an increased or more or less normal sort of levels of demand, but uh, supply that was kind of restricted, and that helped push the oil and gas prices back to a sort of uh, normal historical levels or pre-pandemic levels. And then, of course, um, later on, the beginning of the beginning of this year, we obviously did have the uh, geopolitical tensions with the war in Ukraine, restricting gas supply to Europe, and uh, so on and so forth. So uh, that's also been quite a quite a factor. And uh, on top of it, of course, you have speculators who are trying to make profit out of these. Violent moves because uh, commodity prices are, so to speak, very susceptible to sudden outbursts of euphoria, of extreme euphoria or extreme fear, even in the very short term. So you do you do have quite a bit of you know speculation with uh, financial products, financial derivatives based on oil gas and even even you know some of the uh, refined products like uh, gasoline and so on and that obviously translates into into prices that uh, don't in the short run might not seem completely completely rational I, I as a matter of fact i remember back in april if my memory serves me right 2020 we had the headlines about oil prices uh, going into negative territory which they didn't really. It's just it was just because of a technicality of the WTI futures contracts that are not cash settled. They're delivery settled. So essentially, what happened was there were a lot of uh, speculative traders who had a whole bunch of positions to unwind because they didn't want barrels of oil delivered to their front doors, so to speak. They were willing to sell it at uh, at any price, even to give money to somebody to get <laughs> those deliveries uh, off of their off of their portfolio, so to speak. Now you do not have the same you don't have the same problem with uh, the Brent benchmark, which is the 
let's say, European uh, Northern Sea sort of benchmark, because the brand contracts could be cash settled rather than uh, delivery settled. So uh, you don't have that, uh, that sort of issue there. And, and just to be clear, when you say brand, you mean crude oil? Yeah, yeah. I mean crude oil. So, so for crude oil, you have essentially three major benchmarks. So you have the, uh, the West Texas uh, Intermediate, or WTI, and then you have the Brent, which is the European, quote-unquote, oil, and then you have the Dubai one. And, and you have some other, other contracts that are traded, some other benchmarks like the Ural for Russia and, and, and so on. But uh, those are the three main ones, basically. And what, what we've seen as, as the effect of that is, as, as you mentioned, EBITDA has been kind of exploding over the past couple of years, which, by the way, EBITDA as a, as a measure, it's a, it's a great proxy in absolute terms. How, how, what's it like in relative terms you know, to, to compare different companies and different, even, you know, different time periods? With? I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a tricky, uh, tricky question here because uh, EBITDA, EBITDA is, um, is a very flexible sort of accounting concept it's there is no universally accepted definition of ebitda and you know ebitda is assumed to be a good proxy of free cash flow of a company which which is very useful to to judge how a cyclical company such as you know an energy or an oil and gas company is doing or might be doing because things that uh, go into the net income figure, the bottom line, don't necessarily reflect that sort of reality. Now, that said, there are probably some companies out there, not, not necessarily in the oil and gas sector, across many sectors that use it and probably abuse it. And this is the reason why I humorously remarked in the article that uh, accountants joke that uh, EBITDA stands for essentially earnings before I uh, trick the dumb auditor. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that facetiousness uh, aside, yes, EBITDA is not a universally defined concept in accounting, and, and neither is uh, free cash flow, by the way. But it's a fairly useful one as a rough measure of, of profitability that could make companies with from a, from the same sector, but with very different, for example, capital structures or um, different sort of operations, whether in downstream or upstream or even midstream, you could kind of compare those just on on profitability. If if you use it that way, if that makes sense, I'm not sure if if that answers your question. But <laughs> no, it does. It does. It does. It's a, it's a it's a great proxy, despite the fact that you know it's a bit. It's a bit uh, malleable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And historically speaking, you know, in terms of their investment activity, how active have energy companies been in putting money behind startups? And by energy companies, I mean oil and gas companies, right? The yeah. oil and gas peers in particular. I would say that they have been fairly, fairly active. Some of them have been around for actually more than 20 years. So they have been fairly active. That is that is the short answer to your question. But to elaborate on that a little bit, the way they normally see their startup investments or their venture investments is 
they subdivide them into three major kind of groups. So one would be renewable technologies. So in other words, the technologies that may and I think will eventually disrupt their business completely. And uh, as we go for a complete transition away from fossil fuels. Which they know, and that's part of the reason why they're, you know, so active in that space. Yeah, I mean, arguably, yes, yes. That's uh, probably one of the reasons why, much like any any big corporation that is afraid that it may get disrupted. So that's definitely a reason. Why? Another reason why may be simply, simply because there are certain regulatory and tax sort of advantages. Aside from, you know, social sort of image and branding, there are certain regulatory issues that might be regulatory and tax, I should say, that might be of, of interest to them to be in, in that space. So renewables, that's one category. The other one would be tech or IT. So any sort of technology related to, say, industrial internet of things or any sort of AI AI software that might improve and streamline their operations. That's definitely of interest to them. And that is probably the one group of investments, the one part of their venture investments, which uh, where they're most likely to score an exit much earlier, to be honest. Though not necessarily always, but um, it's just more likely, put it that way. And the third category of venture investments would be simply venture investments in core oil and gas, oil and gas technologies, right? So that would be someone um, inventing a liquid that could clean up pipelines or something like that, right? So that would be core core tech to them. Right. And do these tend to be, um, when, when the oil and gas majors go in, into the venture space, do they tend to go in earlier or a bit later on in a startup cycle? I mean, I would I would say that's or a bit all over the place. I would I would say I would say early, but not like completely early. So to them, it has to be a startup that is that has sort of reached a given investability level. If that makes sense, so they they might go into a seed round or into an A round, but uh, probably very often not like much earlier than that. This makes sense. As a matter of fact, I've over the years sort of spoken to uh, some of these investors. Uh, they have they have said that it's it's hard to find some investable startups that are that have scaled enough or that are scalable enough because Sure, you could find a lot of those lifestyle companies or, you know, some retired engineer from a big oil and gas corporate has, um, you know, invented a small little thing that uh, helps them in their process. And uh, the startup probably makes uh, a million a year in revenue or something like that. But it's not really that much more scalable beyond that. So there are definitely looking for something for something that is scalable operationally globally and longer term and i would say 
this is the reason why some of them are probably tangentially involved in in certain things like accelerators and and incubators and such sort of initiatives uh, that uh, help push the very very early stage in uh, innovation in energy to get to that investability level but they're not necessarily committing capital directly to those and then as i mentioned they do tend to have a much uh, larger investment horizon because let's just be honest whether you're you know developing a technology uh for uh cleaning you know oil pipelines or uh you're uh, doing something in the renewable space like solar or hydrogen chances are your startup might not scale you know as 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 quick as a as a software or a you sort you know the sort of an e-commerce platform might <laughs> over the internet so generally generally the oil and gas investors are very much aware of this sort of this sort of timeline that's required to uh, scale an investment like that and and of the risks that it involves actually yeah i mean certainly i think it and, and kind of cyberspace investors have yeah that's an, probably the easier yeah they, yeah they, they, they have an advantage in that space uh, certainly over over companies making physical products or, or trying to you know get some off the ground in terms of you know some kind of construction project or anything like that that said these this is still a sector that knows it needs to change or if if, if you want to look at it cynically at least look like it's trying to change right so so investing in startups is important to them. So, you know, given this rise that they've had in revenues and in, you know, pre-profit money or, or, or EBITDA, one, I suppose, should we have expected a commensurate rise in investments in startups along, you know, with, you know, with trend lines somewhat resembling the rise that they've seen in, in revenue? And if so, is that what we have seen? I would suppose that we would have to expect something like that for all of the reasons basically we mentioned above but yes i mean the the profits are not going to go entirely into startup investing let's let's just let's just uh clarify that all right off the bat for, because firstly like first and foremost they have uh, maintenance and innovation capex too to take care of, right, uh, in order to keep their operations uh, to uh, latest sort of standards and, and so on and so forth. So that's that's one big area where you know big profits are going to go into. Another one is returning to shareholders. So there's two, basically two ways, at least for the for the ones that are uh, publicly listed. There's two ways to return to shareholders, either in the form of a dividend or in the form of a share buyback. And yes, they have been definitely doing that. Matter of fact, the other day, Exxon published earnings and quarterly results. And uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of share buybacks in the moment. So uh, yes, oil and gas companies have been doing that as well. But uh, yeah, but Probably we would expect also the venture, the corporate venturing budget to to sort of increase in a more or less uh, commensurate 
way. And and has that expectation uh, met reality at all? <laughs> well, that's uh, that's a trickier <laughs> a trickier question. So it it has definitely increased. And for those who are interested in the actual figures, that it may refer to my uh, to my article, which I which, th- which I uh, think you will share as a link. Exactly. Yeah. I, there there will be a link in the show notes for for anyone who wants to look at it. So the short answer is they have, they have increased, but they don't seem to have increased as much. So if if let's say from if let's say EBITDA has increased since the second quarter of 2020, uh, like five times, the number of venture deals has um, has increased uh, less less than five times, more like two or three. And the venture dollars, which is a slightly trickier, sort of like the total estimated dollars in those deals, that's a slightly trickier sort of measure to hold them accountable for. But that has not necessarily increased, you know, in the same in the same way. But that being said, that's that's a sort of a less reliable measure because it depends on valuations on the sort of later stage deals that uh, they might have been involved in, which would be uh, pricier and, and, and so on. So that's that was probably not the best thing to look at. But um, in terms of number of deals, yeah, the number of deals could have increased probably more in all, in all fairness. It feels like they might be sort of waiting on the sidelines in order to deploy some of the dry powder they might have at the extra dry powder they might have at the moment. And this, uh, you know, in a, in a way makes sense. I mean, in most sectors, you do have a lot of, uh, a lot of correction going on, to put it mildly, in terms of valuations. So just um, waiting opportunistically on the sidelines might be something that they're doing. That's uh, certainly the impression I got when speaking to a professional from the oil and gas CVC space. That's certainly what I read between the lines. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more. It could be perhaps more fairly characterized as a um, not a lack of confidence, but but a, a a caution with with making sure that they kind of invest smartly right now. And 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 would it also be fair to to perhaps you know uh, speculate that they they're waiting. Almost, almost as if it's like a deflationary cycle, right? They're waiting for these valuations to maybe bottom out before they start ramping up the investment again. Would that be fair? I mean, most likely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I like I. I <laughs> that that is, you know, I guess a fair thing to speculate about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that it's hundred uh, percent the reality, but it, it certainly seems like it is the case. Yeah. So going forward, then, can we expect uh, a, a rise? I would say yes. I would say yes. Now, currently, the oil prices and gas prices are are under temporary pressure because, well, because of a variety of factors. A lot of analysts say they're discounting things like a recession, which would mean essentially lower demand, which should dampen a little bit the upward pressure on oil prices and gas prices and so on. Now, however, it it might not be uh, you know a permanent uh, or a more sort of 
mid-term or longer-term decline quite yet of, of these commodity prices, at least at least in my view. And by the way, when, when it comes to oil and gas prices, like if you read some of the forecasts of the big investment banks, the ranges are just so wide. <laughs> it's almost almost ridiculous. I mean, there are some who were saying like, who have been saying since the beginning of this year, uh, yeah, oil all prices might uh, drop to uh, like $60 a barrel uh, and others who say, no, uh, they're going to go go up to uh, three, 380 a barrel, which, you know, like both, both suppositions seem, seem kind of like equally ridiculous to me at this point. But the, the energy administration of the US does not seem to share that sort of wide range of of prices. I mean, it is quite that a cost to be yeah, fair. Right? Yeah, but, yeah, but I mean, they say essentially prices are likely going to move between 70 and $100 a barrel. Yeah, that seems more reasonable. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a more reasonable range to me. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, with with unfettered speculation and, and those things, you could never, you can never be quite certain, right? But, but yeah, overall, like I would say, you know, if if commodity prices stabilize or just, uh, I guess, more or less move in a range-bound way, right? And there are no huge drops in demand and profitability, expected profitability, live lives up to uh, to sort of investors' expectations. Yeah, there there should be, you know, enough probably enough capital for for oil and gas companies to deploy in venturing among other things well one of the things that we've heard quite a bit from from various governments actually around the world especially since the the kind of ongoing energy crisis is is the topic of windfall taxes right some some people want them some some don't and one of the arguments that that uh, that energy companies give as to why they don't want them you know other than the obvious that they eat into the profits is that they will in in so doing, kind of reduce their capacity to invest in, in innovation. Could that be a play here? Well, innovation and and you know maintenance capex and maintenance, right, right, right. 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 So is that are we seeing that at play here at all? I actually uh, examined that uh, briefly in my in my piece. So um, I, I found uh, I found some research in in one place, the Tax Foundation uh, website, where they essentially have a table with all the sort of windfall taxes that have been either implemented or um, planned across across the world or across most of the developed world anyway and the reality is like if you if you actually look at look at the fine print that doesn't seem to be quite so thwarting to the oil and gas companies because the fine print is important and devil is in the details as we know and the reality is is like yes there will be some windfall taxes but they're not going to be nearly as as heavy or as burdensome as some critics some pro oil critics say they would be as a matter of fact uh there was someone from a big oil and gas company who spoke with the BBC and said that um, the company did not expect 
to pay any windfall tax this year. And what was the rate that was that was suggested by the government? I, I believe it was around twenty-five uh, percent off of a off of a baseline that they calculate in a specific way. I'm not I'm not entirely certain. <laughs> Putting me a little on the spot here, but it, it, it was around it was around that. So it's twenty-five uh, percent of excess profits above that sort of baseline that it establishes. Yeah. Well, baseline, not not necessarily threshold. Baseline basically means like they've probably taken an average of like X number of past years before this ongoing energy crisis or ongoing energy bull market, however you want to call it. And, you know, based off of that, they would calculate windfall tax. But, you know, the reality is there are plenty of exemptions for instance, if an oil company, oil and gas company, reinvests that uh, into uh, capex or uh, into certain certain other projects that the government views as important, so mm, in my view, the so-called windfall taxes are not going to be nearly as harmful as some some critics out there say they would be. And you know, in some countries, the whole attempt of Im- imposing windfall levies has kind of seems to have kind of stalled or failed altogether like for instance in the u.s it doesn't seem like this is going to be implemented at least at least at the moment yeah at least not in the next two years right yeah Uh, maybe maybe it would have been possible in the past two but not not in the next two well yeah let's check in again in in uh in 2024 yeah oh we'll see well, on uh, on that somewhat optimistic note, I think it's a good place to wrap up, Kelly. I know th- thank you so much for coming on uh, GVR, and I'm, I'm sure it won't be too long before we see you again. So, so until then, you know, take care, and well, you and I will be talking, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, but the, the audience will see you soon. You know, thank you for having me. That was it from us this week on the Global Venturing Review. Be sure to check out our upcoming live webinar on space tech, which will be taking place on Wednesday, the 14th of December. We've got a cracking panel lined up, so you definitely won't want to miss out on it. You can find the GVR podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or at your listening post of choice. So make sure you like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from Inner Production, whose great work you can check out at innerproduction.com. And our music is by Kevin McLeod and a Creative Commons license. We'll be back again soon, as ever. Until then, take care.